we are going to today look at the fact that we seem to be hitting brick walls all the time. In the euphoria of protest, this incredible outpouring across the world that's manifested in one way in the trucking convoys, all over we see the same phenomenon. People hit the ceiling of the predictable kind of actions that everyone's trained to do, that is protest and expect change to come out of that. And then when it doesn't, people fall away. They have this, after the euphoria of those events, people start asking, well, now what do we do? What do we build? How do we build it? Well, of course, you can't build anything without a, with a blindfold on. You just end up building a structure that will fall down. And so the blindfold is on us inwardly and outwardly. And today what we're going to look at is ways to remove it by looking at many of the hard lessons we've learned over time, not just people's theories that are easy to broadcast now up on the Internet, personal feelings about things, but the hard lessons that we've experienced over decades, really, and centuries, because we're standing on the shoulders of many people who fought these battles. There's nothing new under the sun except the history we didn't know about. The same thing we're facing now, the tyranny of a few over the many, our ancestors were fighting these battles centuries and millennia ago. And it's kind of reminded me of that parable Jesus talked about where he said, an evil spirit is driven out of a man, and then he finds the man empty, and he comes back and brings six other demons, and the man is even worse off than before because he drove out one demon, but then six and seven come back to occupy him again. That's almost a summing up of world history when it comes to political change. You overthrow one tyrant, the tyranny after is just as bad, if not worse. And in this time of war, genocide, repression, the corporatocracy, the things that we've detailed in so, in such great detail on murderbydecree.com, republicofkanata.org now, that we have to go beyond the details. We have to go beyond simply reacting, 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 reacting to what the so-called elites do but they don't do anything. They have no power in and of themselves. They have the power we surrender to them consciously and unconsciously. So the question now is us and how to overcome that. We're going to talk about that today. And leading into that, these are a number of um, clips from lectures and other things we've done um, uh, over, well, over a long period of time. But um, looking at things such as the whole question of how this genocide is a continuation the stuff now with the COVID police state. It's a continuation of things that we've documented for decades in Canada and around the world. And the criminality of all of us involved in that system, not just the favored bad guys, take your pick, but all of us and our complicity in that. How do you overcome complicity? By looking in the mirror honestly, accepting responsibility for who we are, how we profited off the suffering of many, and how we can step out of that. The title of today's show is Can We Survive Ourselves Leaving the Dead City? and how we do that, and why we do it even more fundamentally. Now, leading into that, I, I've got a couple of things I just wanted to share that, to me, sum it up. Um, this is taken from my book, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four, about Bingo Dawson, Harry Wilson, Billy Coombs, Ricky Lavalley, these residential school death camp survivors who worked with me. And in it, I describe being on um, with a white family in Port Alberni the last year I was there as a minister and being at a deathbed experience with them. The family members were grouped uncertainly around the dying woman's hospital bed. She was barely breathing, her face gaunt and yellowed. 
her eyes occasionally flickering open with faint recognition. The room smelled of death, but nobody seemed to notice. Hey, sis, you're looking better today, exclaimed a paunchy man who had just entered the room bearing an armful of roses. Some of the family smiled, briefly reassured, while the others kept their doubts to themselves. They all seemed poised gingerly on an ice floe that was about to crack wide open. Well, I stood apart from the rest of them, and I weighed the right moment to say something. The fat brother had laid the roses next to her and was performing a pep talk refrain with the rest of them to try to rescue them from the truth. Some of the family even began smiling and nodding when he assured them that, sure, she had liver cancer, but she'll be up and around soon. No one dared disturb the genial denial until I did. I finally said, I think it's a good time now for everyone to say goodbye to Carol. My words must have seemed like a hard slap to them. Some of the family actually winced. The brother turned on me angrily. The doctor says she's got a good chance, he exploded. No, I answered. That was before. She can go at any moment now, Dave. The cancer spread all through her liver. She's going to die. Well, at that point, someone began sobbing, and then the ice broke. Whatever held them together in their lies suddenly collapsed. The women, crowded, the women crowded around Carol and touched her as they wailed, pouring out the grief they had all bottled up inside. The men stood back, crestfallen, some of them crying silently. And Dave, the brother, kept staring at me blankly. Well, a few hours later, Carol did die. But most of her family had made their peace with her by then and had left. Only her brother Dave remained. He was holding his sister's hand at the end, mumbling something to her. He finally laid his head against hers in what might have been acceptance. I don't think any of the family ever forgave me for speaking the truth of that looming death that night. All they remember, perhaps, is the pain my words caused and the brief shattering of the protected comfort zone. None of them ever spoke to me after that, although they threw enough hostile glances my way whenever we passed on the streets of Port Alberni. Clergymen and any of us are not expected to impart unpleasant facts, just the kind that console. When an entire people are dying... Their denial is no less real, and the risk of telling the truth is so much greater and riskier. The truth-teller is not merely snubbed, they're destroyed ruthlessly. But the terminal condition abides anyway. It continues. And I think of that when we're talking about the death of our culture and this whole system. You get that reaction when you tell the truth. But, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's more to it than that. That's just the opening scene. Because the other person who reminded me of our situation now is a woman I knew. Her, she was nicknamed Sybil the Slasher. We worked at a drop-in center on East Hastings Street, the Sweetgrass Center. And Sybil used to come in on every Monday morning like clockwork. And she, her arms were all cut up, apparently with a razor or something. And she always did the same thing. She'd stand there with her bleeding arms held out to us and she'd say, What happened to me? Well, nobody ever had much patience for her, they, especially they were worried about getting AIDS, and she was a street woman, and they didn't know what to do with her, so usually they just turned her away or sent her to the hospital. But one day, I actually followed Sybil out of the center, and after she, we had actually bandaged her up that day, and she kept looking at me. I tried to talk to her about what had happened to her, and she said to me, it's almost out of me now. Well, concerned, I asked her if she had any razors on her, and she gave me this kind of pitying look and said with a remarkable calm, I didn't do this to me. This is from God. And then seeing my confusion, she said, it's my cleansing. Well, I've never known whether she was just, as would be labeled so easily in our culture, a dissociated psychotic who was just cutting herself up, or 
whether there was more to it than that, because we all carry those scars. Hers were more obvious. A lot of us, and me, we carry the inner scars. We don't show those slashes to each other. But what I realized is that the part of the transformation of us is to see those scars in ourselves and around us and be having the courage and willingness to look at them like a dying culture so we can move on, we can transform, but only once we've accepted that, who and what we are. Well, the good thing about being cut up, if you like, and having your old life fall apart, as I have had done, is that all of those fabricated bits of ourselves, the things inserted in us, the conditioning, the programming, the state of possession we're all in, all of that falls away too. And something different can start to spread up inside us, if we'll let it. At that point, death doesn't hold us anymore, nor does the fear of death. And that's why I've been able to survive so many years in this. And I think I'm kind of unintelligible to a lot of people these days, because I'm saying don't focus on the death and the obvious facts. Look beyond. Because like my friends who gave up their lives in this struggle and who died clean because of that, I've been able to pass out of this realm and their whole entire stinking arrangement. In effect, we've earned our passage into a new world. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why that happens, how that happens, and the possibility in each of us to allow that to happen. But only when we know, and here's the point I want to end on, and then we're going to go to these uh, different uh, presentations on these different themes, which I really urge you to hang into right to the very end, because there's a punchline in the final reflection called A Time of Judgment on reaping what we've sown and moving past that. And um, so I offer those two. But in a final uh, idea here, uh, if you take a look in um, Isaiah chapter 6, there's that famous passage people love to quote uh, where God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me, right? And for those of us involved in this in our lives, we often realize that, well, yeah, that's the way our life has been. We've volunteered to do these things either before or after we were born, but nevertheless, we feel like we're volunteering. But the people never read past that because then God says, go to these people and say, you will hear but not understand. You will see but not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see and hear and be turned and saved. So the amazing message there is that there isn't necessarily a happy ending. People do not change, by and large. Look at what's going on around us. No, you can go all the time and hope and expect people to change, but then when it doesn't happen, unless we have our eyes on the higher purpose of all this, we're going to get defeated by that fact. And I've seen that happen to a lot of people. Look past that apparent inability of people to change and the apparent refusal of the system to change, how these crimes carry on and on and nothing we do, none of our protests ever seem to do anything. Look past that to the wider drama going on, whether God or for any of the agnostics in the audience, just the natural law, the way things develop, it's not what we think. It's like that cartoon I used to hang on my church door, uh, office door, and show two goldfish in a bowl, and one says, well, of course there's a God. Who do you think changes the water? <laughs> and people interpret that as me saying there's no God, but no. God's kind of jest on all of us is that things are not as they appear to be. Open yourselves up to the possibility that there's more going on than we can even possibly imagine and stand ready to be called for the higher battle, which is not about the obvious stuff. It's about things that will only be made revealed to us in the course of us walking that path. 
but to walk the path, we've got to let go. Allow ourselves to die, literally in many cases, die to everything we knew and stand open to the truth. So that's how I want to intro the show today. Follow everything we're doing at murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org, and write to me, angelfire101, that's angelfire101 at protonmail.com, and write in and let us know what you're thinking about all this and the direction. And we are going to focus, like I said today, not on the obvious stuff, but on the deeper reflections, hopefully in a, uh, in a way that uplifts all of you to allow you to go to the next stage in this, because this is not an overnight battle. We're going to be teaching our grandchildren how to carry on in the struggle between two forces in the world, a corporatocracy that's exterminating the human race and a free people returning to the natural law, returning to God, returning to self-governing common law republics. That's the fork in the road, folks. Those are the paths we've got to take. I hope today inspires you. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. We'll be back soon. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. 250 years ago, my ancestor Peter Annett was thrown into prison at age 70 in London, England. He was a free-thinking philosopher and writer an agitator who ran campaigns to expose the hypocrisy and lies of the Anglican Church and the Crown of England, a no-no back then and, of course, still today. So carrying on that family tradition in yet another way, I'm launching a column called Annette's Weekly, a free inquiry and commentary. And, of course, it's named after the Free Inquirer, which was Peter Annett's uh, title of his pamphlets and his publications. This is published without copyright or illusions every Wednesday, and this is the first of Annette's Weekly. The first uh, reflection is entitled, What's Good for Albert is Good for You? Notes on a Junkie Nation. Albert Borla has an appropriately panoramic view of the Hudson River from his palatial mansion in Scarsdale, New York. For on his lofty summit, and as a self-described savior of mankind, Pfizer Pharmaceuticals' CEO has made a deal with a certain prince in return for all the power of the world. Well, some of that arrangement was revealed this past week when, in a candid television interview, Mr. Borla pontifically announced that his company's so-called COVID vaccination will, henceforth, be required on an annual basis, and probably even more often than that. The dark prince and the drug oligarch shareholders couldn't have been happier. The sky is truly no limit when Beelzebub is on the job, allowing a lowly veterinarian from Thessalonica, Greece, to climb to the height of Big Pharma's corporate dung heap and its subservient governments. But Albert Borla is just the latest scab on a dead and dying body politic being sucked dry by his master. It should surprise no thinking soul that the land of the fee and the home of the depraved is now run by history's biggest drug dealers posing as public servants. Of course, this is not exactly an original or new arrangement. Back when opium was the drug of manufactured choice, America's wealthiest families like the DuPonts and the Hermans became rich because they profited off the suffering and death of millions of addicts. In the mid-19th century, believe it or not, one-third of the total wealth of the British Empire came from the Chinese opium trade, the securing of which, through two bloody wars, allowed Queen Vicky to wander her vast estates in the company of her very own 
Highland stud named John Brown. So, people, let's not snub our nose at junkies. They've made our civilization what it is today. Such as it is. As for Al the pusher Borla, we can th he can thank his lucky stars tonight that the Biden administration is scrambling to make his statement and dream come true. Already the White House's stable of groomed scientists are predicting new and somehow foreseen waves of the COVID virus that will return after winter and will require annual or even monthly booster shots. Well, the fact that the only thing being boosted will be Pfizer's mega profits is becoming too obvious and banal even to those who are encumbered with the official three-second memory. As for the 2024 American election, Trump supporters should step out of their own addiction-induced haze for a moment and remember that Albert Borla is a mega funder of the Republican Party, a loyal party member and an admitted good friend of Donny Boy. Well, clearly, friends, the fault lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. So how, how else other than by going cold turkey from the entire arrangement can we undo our over-medicated dependency on a government and an economy of the oligarchs, by the oligarchs, and for the oligarchs. Part 2. The Big Lie Sprouts in Kamloops. Welcome to the 215 Club. I think it was the Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels who observed that a film camera was a better tool than a shovel when it came to concealing a murder weapon. Joe's heirs in the Canadian government are proving him right. This past week, Ottawa's not-so-bright boys announced they're shooting a documentary film on the scene of their own homegrown crime at the misnamed Kamloops Indian Residential School. And where the hell is Kamloops? I can hear my American readers asking. Well, that city is tucked neatly and snugly out between the mountains of central British Columbia in a pretty valley where children and evidence have been going missing for a long time. Kamloops is the scene of one of the most horrendous crimes by church and state in Canadian history, including murderous drug testing experiments on children by the Catholic Church and their big pharma partners, Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. But all that's being scrubbed clean these days, ever since the killers discovered a mass grave of children that yours truly has been talking about since the summer of 1998. Well, up here in the Great White North, we call this the 215 Club because that's the official number of little corpses who the people responsible for them are now saying died in the Kamloops school. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who are not known for their intellectual or political acumen, and who imprisoned and buried the Kamloops children, have announced they're finally investigating themselves, with the same finesse as Al Capone launching an inquiry into all those corpses strewn about his lovely city of Chicago. Well, comic relief aside, the 215 Club is nothing less than the time-honored method of official obfuscation employed by every blood-soaked ruler since Nero. Everywhere you go now in Canada, you see, remember the 215 signs and stickers all over our oh-so-politically-correct Canada. But whatever happened to those 60,000 children, and more than that, who were killed by starvation, torture, murder, sterilization programs, in those residential school death camps. Well, they're all down the memory hole, as George, George Orwell would say, as is our 20-year public campaign that forced this genocide into the open 
Just read MurderByDecree.com. Well, the question is, how high can an official lie climb? There seems to be no limit in the land of Canada that gave rise to this classic joke. Question. How do you get Canadians to jump into a vat of acid? Answer. Easy. Just tell them to. Personally, I'm not holding my breath and will do nothing to constrain my nausea when the Kamloops documentary is unleashed on a blithely self-stupefied Canadian public. But, of course, I am half American. And part three, my favorite reflection, it's called Frank's Turn, A Flower Sprouts on Main Street. The great melting plot the great melting pot principle is alive and well in my old Skid Row neighborhood of Vancouver's downtown east side. Namely, that everything on the bottom gets burnt and the scum rises to the top. But Frank Ehrmanskid is an exception. The other day on the corner of Main and Hastings Street, where Frank sits like an exiled chieftain, we were engaging in our friendly repartee acquired from a friendship that spanned over two decades now. Frank glanced coolly with his aged Cree eyes at a gang of Vancouver's less than finest who were assaulting and handcuffing another homeless Indian man. Bloody cops, he declared, a just-rolled dube hanging grimly out of his mouth. And then, disregarding his joint, he angrily yelled across the street, Hey, assholes, you get over here. I want to talk to you. One of the policemen turned to look at us while his colleagues continued to beat up the Indian. You heard me, Frank yelled again. Cut out that shit now. The cop looked gleeful as he answered Frank's challenge, and no doubt with visions of busted heads dancing in whatever gray matter he possessed, the policeman strode toward us. I recognized him. He wasn't one of those pretty groomed tourist cops, but a paunchy goon known for his hatred of natives. You got something to say to me, lip dick? He screamed at Frank as he towered over him. I said it already, the Cree man said matter-of-factly, lighting up his joint. Just leave that guy alone. Do you get off and kicking the shit out of us? The cop glanced at me suspiciously. Are you with him? he demanded. Absolutely, I answered with a smile. My name's Kevin Annett. I extended my hand to him, but he replied, I know who you are, dipstick. He turned back to Frank. I could haul your ass in again, you know, his large ship announced to the Indian. Yeah, okay, but what's that going to do besides getting you your quota? answered Frank. It's not going to do fix anything down here, and you know it, man. His words seemed to deflate the cop, who for the first time looked confused. Look, said Frank laconically, we all know the score. The triad gang's taken over, and they're paying you guys to run out us small-time dealers. And you're told by the city to let the crime spread down here so the property values will crash and their Chinese developer buddies can buy up this whole neighborhood cheap. Do you like being a whore? The policeman was dumbfounded, speechless. Oh, look, sorry, added Frank. I didn't mean to call you a whore. That would insult the girls down here who've got to sell their tails to survive. You don't have to do this shit. You could try helping my brother here and me change things for the better. I couldn't restrain myself at that point. I let out a laugh. The cop looked at me, and seeing that I didn't mean the laugh at his expense, he smiled, and he let out a little chuckle, too. And then he nodded and said to Frank, Okay, smart guy. And he walked back across the street to his colleagues. A few minutes later, they uncuffed the other Indian, and let him go. And then they all walked away through the mounds of garbage, rigs, and stumbling souls inhabiting East Hastings Street. Before he vanished, the cop who'd confronted us turned and nodded to us, and Frank said, Oh yeah, good one. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Boy. Stay tuned for more.
Hello everyone, this is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. It's October 27th, 2021. With this week's issue of Annette's Weekly, a column of commentary. And I'm going to start off today's reflections with a quote from former U.S. President Harry Truman, who said, The only thing new under the sun is the history you didn't know about. And that has great relevance to what you're going to hear today. Part one is entitled, On Hunting Indians and Other Canadian Pastimes. Well, it's always encouraging, although slightly comedic, when people finally notice the garbage they've been swilling through for many years. And that's happened again this past week up here in the Great White North. Worried pale Canucks have suddenly noticed and are publicly indignant over the hunting down and imprisoning of vaccination-refusing Aboriginal families by Mounties and soldiers. A lot of people are on the internet now decrying this activity, which apparently has been going on on Cree reservations in Saskatchewan. Indians are being hunted down because they won't take the shot. Well, one can only wonder where these people who are so upset have been these past many decades. As a matter of fact, I wonder where they've been for the past century and a half in Canada. Because in this fair country, Indians have always been literal fair game, including under the law, Incidents like the one in Saskatchewan are daily events on and off the internment camps we like to call Indian reservations because under the law in Canada, Aboriginals are not citizens but dependent wards of the state and they have no rights at all. They've been that way under the Canada's Apartheid Indian Act since 1874. I mean, how do you think 60,000 residential school children not only were so easily killed, but then covered up without people really caring that much. It's a whole regime and mindset where it's okay to wipe out Indians. I mean, take this quote from Harriet Nahani, who's dead now, but she shared this at one of our first healing circles in 1995. Quote, We heard a whistle early that morning, and the Mounties ran ashore from their gunboat. They beat down everyone with clubs and chased the children through our village and tied them together with a long rope, and loaded them on the gunboat to take them to the Catholic residential school on Mears Island. Most of those children never came back. Well, Harriet Nahani herself was pursued by Mounties after she started talking publicly in our campaign about the murder of children at the United Church Alberni Residential School. Eventually, she was arrested without a warrant, handcuffed and beaten, and left bleeding in Surrey Remand Prison. And at the age of 71, she died of those beatings on February 11, 2005. Another story, Lorna McNaughton from Brantford, Ontario, in January 2012. Then the soldiers took all those children from the Mohawk School and drove them out to a quarry outside Brantford. And they stood them in front of a ditch and they shot them all. I think it was a bulldozer. It went in after and shoved all this dirt on top of them when some of those kids were still moving and a former RCMP officer in Surrey in October 2020. Quote, My former colleagues in the RCMP call it the hooker game. They take native women off the streets and drive them east of Vancouver to a special site in the mountains, and they let them loose in the woods. They charge lots of money to rich guys to come in and hunt them down like animals. I think the going rate starts at $25,000. The hunters can either track down and shoot the women outright or capture and rape them, Then they're disposed of after and are buried in underground metal containers along the Sea to Sky Highway going up to Whistler. Well, 
We have to ask why the people who are now so suddenly irate about Indian hunting in Saskatchewan were so silent about it over the past quarter century, when we made public many such stories of living eyewitnesses. The truth is that we have all been accommodated and willing partners to the crime in our own backyard. Our refusal to fight for those who are killed in our name with our tax dollars and church donations has made it that much easier now for the COVID police state to hunt down all of us. So, welcome to the reservation, folks. And on that note, part two, entitled, Verily, Verily, Quite Contrarily, Who Did Larry Bury? Notes on a Remarkably Guilty Politician. Someone, I think it was me, once observed that the Canadian Senate is where you are sent to be either paid off or shut off. Other than that, this unelected, unaccountable gravy train doesn't seem to have much of a purpose besides to exercise veto power over those few bills that are passed in Parliament. The Senate's actually a perfect refuge for people with a lot to hide. Guys like Larry Campbell. Now, you probably haven't heard much about Larry, even though he was consecutively a drug squad Maori, the chief coroner of Vancouver, and then the mayor of Vancouver before he was handed a plush Senate seat in 2005 by his good buddy Prime Minister Paul the Fixer Martin. The trained SEALs, called the Canadian media, have made a point not to report Larry's antics, no doubt because they implicate wealthy guys who don't want their names in the papers. But in recent times, Larry has been an even naughtier boy than he was during his salad days on the West Coast. I mean, what can I say about a drug cop who never busted a single dealer? A coroner who issued fake death certificates, and who granted access to the city morgue to the highest bidders, and a mayor who presided over the cover-up of serial killing by cops on the streets of Vancouver. And that was just for starters. During the late 1990s, Larry and his buddy, the future Prime Minister, were both spotted by undercover agents attending the snuff film orgies at the infamous Piggy's Palace in Coquitlam, where Aboriginal women who were provided by the RCMP were ritually tortured, raped, and then killed. Well, fortunately for Larry and Paul, their substandard IQ body disposal guy named Willie Picton was positioned by the Mounties and a complicit media to take the fall for that slaughter. And so, dear readers, what better place to hide somebody like Larry Campbell and a murder weapon than in the ostentatious halls of the Canadian Senate? Clearly, Larry felt safe there, for in the years after his appointment, he felt free to consort even more with offshore killers, Chinese drug dealers, and money laundering operations on the West Coast. According to Grant Wakefield, one of the Canadian security intelligence agents who tailed Larry, quote, Larry Campbell has been the government's point man in the Chinese takeover of the British Columbia economy. That's why he's still so untouchable. Well, that's not to say Larry hasn't messed up a few times. He is only mortal, after all, and an especially greedy mortal at that. The River Rock Casino in Richmond, described by the Vancouver police as, quote, a major center of money laundering and criminal activity, hired the just-appointed Senator Larry Campbell onto its board of directors in 2005 and paid him a retainer to act as its, quote, special consultant with the government. Translated, that means he was the bagman. But I suppose Larry's $151,000 Senate salary couldn't pay his bills or something. Because even after River Rock executives were arrested and charged in B.C. courts in 2018, Larry stayed on loyally and served the company and kept his position on their board after having earned over $3 million from its criminal largesse. 
Well, incidentally and not coincidentally, River Rock and his partner, the great Canadian gaming company, contribute over $80,000 to Larry Campbell's political party called Vision as early as 2005. Well, so did a bevy of organized crime groups from China, Macau, and Hong Kong, according to Peter German, a former RCMP investigator. Well, clearly, the crooks and killers knew a good bet when they saw it in the corpulent Mr. Campbell. Of course, these felonious endeavors pale when compared to the more spectacular crime of the Chinese absorption of Western Canada, a decades-long coup that Larry Campbell has helped to broker as a top senatorial ally of both the Harper and Trudeau governments. In the words of former CSIS agent Grant Wakefield, Canada's status as a Chinese colony is a done deal now, thanks to the efforts of high-placed crooks like Larry Campbell. Those Chinese death squads that now operate so freely in northern British Columbia might as well have his name written all over them. Well, let's not be too hard on the old boy. Larry seems to have retained a trace of human feelings. Last year, the illustrious senator hurled a weepy and outraged email at me after I had publicly mentioned his role in the disappearance of Aboriginal women in Vancouver. Well, Larry didn't deny the charge or even launch a lawsuit against me because the guilty never do. He just called me an asshole in print. Back to you, Larry. And part three. Still on the West Coast. It's entitled, Will Rev Kev Finally Find True Happiness at His Alma Mater? Well, this past week, no doubt to Larry Campbell's chagrin, some uppity University of British Columbia students defied the national blacklisting of yours truly and invited me to be part of an academic panel debate on, guess what, Indian residential schools. It's scheduled for the campus for November 17th. And, of course, they're not going to talk about a lot of stuff, and I intend to bring up a lot of things there, which they didn't plan on doing it, which is likely why it's not going to happen. Needless to say, I was delighted to receive the invitation, since I grew up in the UBC neighborhood and won my three academic degrees there. But, Frankly, I am curious to see whether and not the offer is going to get withdrawn and I'm not going to be able to speak there because that's the way it's been for me and the little matter of the Canadian genocide and the death camps they still call residential schools, it's been that way for over 20 years now on campuses from UBC to Oxford University and Harvard. All of them. I was invited and then the invitation was withdrawn. When it comes to addressing one's homegrown crimes against humanity, academia is a one-party state. And scholarly discourse is as constrained as a gag order. But hey, let's not worry about that. Let's indulge our credulity for a moment and prove me wrong. Let's assume that the great debate will go ahead smoothly on November 17th and that the usual gang of paid disruptors will not be on hand to malign and distract. Here are a few sneak preview thoughts to stir the pot a little bit and get the RCMP and the university administrators even more worried than they already are. Well, to kick things off, I intend to remind the august body that the UBC campus is a remarkably appropriate place to hold such a debate for three reasons. First, it contains archival proof of the deliberate mass murder of generations of Indian children by church, state, and big money. Secondly, the campus administrators have actively suppressed and concealed that evidence. And finally, the campus itself is the site of the mass graves of Aboriginal people today. In short... Dear old UBC is a big crime scene. 
If such opening remarks don't cause my microphone to be immediately turned off and my royal Irish ass kicked off the campus by the UBC security wannabe cops, I'll be very surprised. Because the big corporations that are still stealing West Coast lands and resources and killing Indians just happen to be some of the major funders of the university. And their officials routinely serve as UBC chancellors, presidents, and on the Board of Governors. Companies like BC Hydro, Timberwest, HSBC Bank, and PetroChina. And the latter company even runs its own private army and death squads in northern British Columbia that terrorize Indians off their land to grab the liquid natural gas, courtesy of not only Larry Campbell, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who legalized that present genocide with his Foreign Investment Protection Act. Okay, so never let me be said that I don't like to kick the biggest butt in town. As they say, you either kick it or you lick it. Unfortunately, I've aimed my brogans at the child killers behinds knowledgeably with lots of evidence to back me up. I first came across that evidence as a doctoral student at UBC in the fall of 1995 after I had been summarily thrown out of my job as a minister in the United Church for talking about all their dead little Indians. The evidence I'm referring to is 88 spools of government microfilm in the UBC Kerner Library that are filled with Indian residential school documents going back to 1889. Those records, with their proof of planned extermination and an average 50% death rate in the school spanning a half century, proves that the Crown and his churches have generations of blood on their hands. A fact that's even been affirmed by Canadian and international courts. It's on the record. You can see some of that at murderbydecree.com. Just look under ITCCS archives. It's all there. The problem is never the lack of evidence. The problem is the crooks still being in charge. Well, naturally, neither the killers nor their accomplices appreciate their murder weapons being surfaced like that, so UBC as well eventually showed me the door during my graduate program with a few nudges from the United Church, which used its influence to block funding from my doctoral program and obstruct any of my future speaking engagements at UBC. But it wasn't just documents that had them worried, or had them worried. For just south of the campus on the Musqueam Indian Reserve lie mass graves of native women who routinely vanish from Vancouver streets, as well as spillover remains taken from other body dumping sites around the province. That's according to an RCMP officer named George Finley and a Musqueam Reserve employee named Les Gurin, who disinterred the remains and actually had the bones analyzed, and sure enough, they were pig and uh, remains mixed with female bones. And the Police and media studiously ignored that evidence when it first surfaced. Well, as George uh, Finley, the RCMP officer, said, quote, Everybody knows about those body dumping sites, including the UBC administration. It's just like our own bullshit RCMP investigation into the residential schools. We were told as early as 1998 never to look into anything that might incriminate the churches or the feds. Well, and so it goes here in the Great White North and at my lovely old alma mater, where academic censorship is the name of the game, so that all the corpses, past, present, and future, will remain neatly tucked away and forgotten. Well, that said, I can't help but wonder whether I am incurably naive after all. For some part of me still can't understand why I'm so hated by the UBC bigwigs, like former President Martha Piper, who declared in 2003, quote, Kevin Anna does not welcome on this campus. I mean, all I did, people, was to take seriously UBC's official motto, which is, Tuam Est. And that means, 
It's up to you. I guess they didn't mean me. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.ca. Stay tuned for more. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. It's May the 19th, 2021. I'm speaking to you from the Republic of Kanata, formerly the so-called Dominion of Canada. There's been lots in the news about the arrest of Christian pastors across Kanata for defined COVID regulations. And at the same time, I've been getting personal reports from friends of mine who are Cree Indians in Manitoba that this last week their reserves have been shut down. Nobody can leave unless they get the so-called vaccination. And even their food supplies are being cut off. So it's important to put this whole hysteria being generated about the targeting of Christian pastors into a bigger context. And I do that today with this reflection. The fire this time, there's no escaping ourselves. It was business as usual that spring morning in 1943 at the Nazi death camp of Treblinka in Poland. The cattle cars methodically unloaded the latest batch of men, women, and children slated for extermination as the SS guards dutifully went about their jobs and their bosses were satisfied. But at the nearby Roman Catholic Church in the village of Melkinia, all was not well. You see, the previous night, two SS guards had broken into the church and stolen a pair of golden chalices from the altar. Well, the village priest was outraged. He wasn't upset at the smell of burning human flesh coming from down the road or the cries of the condemned wafting from nearby. No, no. What upset him was the loss of church property. He immediately protested the theft of the Treblinka Kramp Commandant. And so the chalices were quickly returned that same day with a personal apology of the Commandant, and the thieves were reprimanded. The priest was satisfied, as were all concerned. After all, what's more important than the working partnership of church and state? And after that, the slaughter, of course, continued. Well, Canadians understand that partnership of church and state very well, because after all, it's what gave us this country. The tag team of Crown and Pulpit helped ruthlessly wipe out the people who lived here, beginning and ending with their children. When some of us surfaced the hidden truth of that homegrown slaughter of the innocent, the churches of Canada responded exactly like the priest of Melkinia. What mattered to them wasn't the lives of those children, or of course they wouldn't have done the killing in the first place. What mattered most was their possessions. Not those little bodies in the ground that are still in the ground and have not received proper recognition or a proper burial even. And because of that, like the Treblinka Camp Commandant, the Canadian government stepped in and assured the Catholic, Anglican and United Churches that their golden idols and church property would never be threatened by lawsuits. They would not suffer any material consequences for their mass murder. And so then the official Christians were satisfied. Like any serial killers who escaped justice, the churches even thought well of themselves after. And they spoke of healing and reconciliation to the few survivors of their domestic holocaust. Well, I thought of all of this recently when the news reports describing the arrest of Christian pastors for not complying with code regulations went public. These clergymen are very outraged, as are all their supporters. And that's something I don't quite understand, because apparently these clergymen don't get it. They don't 
perhaps they don't understand or they don't remember that they're actually legal employees of the crown since their churches are a registered arm of the state. That's how they can have their church buildings, their privileges, and their comfy tax-exempt status under the law. They're in bed with the state, and they have been for many years, centuries even. And maybe that makes pastors feel that they are not like the rest of us. They're exempt from arrest by their bed buddies in the Canadian government. Well, that makes pastors in question more confused than anything. They're like the SS guards who act shocked when they're arrested for not obeying an order from the commandant. Wisdom begins once we know ourselves and we know what we belong to. Are Canadian Christians really that surprised that their governmental partner in crime is now calling in the debt they owe to it and demanding their loyalty to its tyranny? The genocide of non-believers that Christian churches created and funded and prospered from is now blowing back on them. Their pact with the worldly devil is coming home to roost. In nature, that's called the law of return. In the Bible, it's called judgment. Woe to those who worship dead idols and lie down with the enemies of God, for they shall reap a whirlwind. Whoever serves Moloch will become like it. The blood of the innocent shall cover them, and the judgment of heaven will condemn them. It's time for Christians to read their own Bible and place themselves in the story. The churches of Canada are now reaping the bloody fruit they've sown, and there's no escaping its consequences. All that we knew is ending. But, as we know, death is a time for learning and change among people willing and able to let go of an old life, especially an old, compromised life complicit in mass murder. This is a time for Christians and for each one of us to choose who and what we will serve. It's not an abstract question anymore. It's now a matter of life and death for all of us. We can talk about changing. Very few actually do it. And I've witnessed that over the last year. As we've tried to form republic assemblies and people kept backing away, they didn't want to govern themselves. They didn't want that freedom. They want to cling to the security of the old. Well, we can stay rooted in that kind of bloody complicity with a godless state, or we can use the present tyranny as a springboard to break free from it, even when only a remnant will do so. We will serve God, not man. For what does light have in common with darkness? Therefore come out from them and be separate. These biblical voices speak to us now as never before. Not as nice words, but as guides to radical action in a time of collapse. But to act we must first see clearly and use our God-given reason, which, since we're inhabitants of a dead city, it's a harder thing for us to do than we can imagine. Amidst all the internet-driven hysteria that pastors are being carted off somewhere, Let's remember that often these stories are given prominence and are circulated by the state and its puppet media as a psychological warfare technique to keep all of us afraid and intimidated. But even if the stories are true, under what Section 176 of the Criminal Code of Canada, anyone who tries to arrest Christian pastors and prevent them from doing their, their duties, they can go to jail for two years, including cops. So what are we to say from that? Is the Criminal Code of Canada now suspended? Well, apparently it is, in practice. And therefore, it proves there is no rule of law in Canada. There's no legitimate government. And the police are acting as private individuals who have no authority over anyone and who we can ignore. Well, lesson number one. We are not to obey such an arbitrary illegal power. But neither can we expect to escape the consequences of disobeying it. That's why Christians and these clergymen in question who are being arrested 
They have to focus on what matters, which is not some ego trip where they take on a godless state. That's operating in the terms of the enemy. We have to operate in our own terms. We have to separate and take our energy back. It means acting in a consistently separated state of mind, focused on the word of God and the way of Jesus, and not of the world. Our reliance on the world has corrupted us. After all, why is there a big concern about churches being closed down? So what? They're just buildings. Why do we need buildings at all? Why not gather in our homes and in forests to do our services and conduct our life as people of faith? Our ancestors did it. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you because you're not greater than me. My Huguenot ancestors in France in the 16th century did exactly that. We had to go off into the woods to do our services in the face of the violence of the Church of Rome. My Scottish ancestors did it the next century. Indigenous people of this land did it. My Alberta relatives talk about the Cree friends and neighbors who used to have to go off into the woods and in the prairies to practice the their ceremonies because the RCMP were hot on their trail to arrest them. Same thing going on now. What mattered was remaining faithful to God and our conscience, then or now. Well, lesson number two, once we separate in that way, reclaim ourselves, we must remain that way and conform our lives and all parts of our lives to our separated faith, shunning the lives of the world and see things clearly, like any adept warrior who knows his enemy. We have to look through the fog of hysteria being generated. I mean, think about it. Does it make logical sense that the Canadian state would attack its historic partners, the churches, on whom they've relied for so much? Why would they antagonize more people into resistance like that? That's counterproductive to the state's main purpose of peacefully assimilating all of us into the global corporatocracy. Like we saw from that story from the Treblinka death camp, And it's a fact, historically, that the Nazis punished theft and random violence by SS soldiers because it created resistance, and it interfered with the Nazis' bigger aim of orderly extermination and genocide. The death camps in Europe and in Canada in the Indian residential schools were not simply brutality and torture. They were a new kind of society that we see playing out right now. They were a new society of total domination and control, achieved not through violence, but through the cooperation and obedience of the slave population. They had to help in their own extermination, just like what's going on right now. After all, don't we see flying everywhere now the new flag of the Canadian police state? Not a maple leaf, but a heart. While understanding this, we need to soar above the foggy present moment and see the whole panorama and the bigger drama that's at work. I was blessed the other day, in a vision, when I was elevated by my ego spirit. And above this fallen city and its tyranny, I see at work something else. I see a divine purpose, unforeseen by high and low alike. I see going on a great cleansing, a destruction of an old world so that a new one can emerge. Well, as in nature, when a fire slashes and burns old growth to fertilize the soil for a new growth of life to emerge, so too is our world being consumed by divine judgment out of which a lot of us won't survive. Remember, to both the prophet Isaiah and Jesus, the same message came. These people cannot be saved. They are an impediment to my will because of their own evil. So do not speak the truth to them, lest they open their eyes and ears and be turned and redeemed. God didn't want people to be saved because their continued existence 
was an impediment to the unfolding of God's will and the work of his remnant. Well, these are startling commands from heaven. They show that something's greater at work than our normal human desire to shore up our old lives and preserve the status quo. Because as with Sodom and Babylon, our world is over. The cycle is at an end. What matters now is the creation of the new world and the removal of everything and everyone that stands in the way of that birth. Frankly, people, we need to pray and hope for the fall of our society, this old murderous world we call civilization, because its aim is nothing less than the extinction of our humanity and our absorption into a single global corporation, the end of Homo sapiens and the beginning of Homo machina, machine man. If the system does not fall, if we don't leave its corruption and tyranny now, not tomorrow, we won't have a future as sovereign and free people, and our children will die in every way possible. We will be consumed and are being consumed in that final, inescapable judgment. Well, few of us can accept this hard truth, even when it's borne out by our own experience, by history, by all the events happening around us. The few of us who can accept it are led by conscience to know that divine judgment is not like ours. We cannot escape the consequence of our actions. And they're returning now like a final verdict from heaven. The few people who know that, a chosen remnant, who may survive the unfolding Holocaust, they are given the sacred task described in Psalm 149. They are given the job to execute judgment in the world and bind the rulers and nobles in chains so that God's justice may be done. Well, I think it's ironic and fitting that at this time of death and birth, it's the official Christians and their churches who are standing under judgment for their incestuous partnership with the criminally convicted worldly rulers. The blood of those children on the ground cry out as a witness against all of the Christians who are concerned about their own well-being now, after having participated in the ruination and killing of so many others. You know, perhaps the arrest of those clergymen and the closing of their false churches is a blast coming not from Ottawa, but from heaven. At the end of the day, not one of these stones of the old temples will be left standing, whether of church or state, because they're not meant to survive. They're an abomination. An abomination against the children of this world and our conscience and our own ancestors and their faith. Because that which we've done to the least of God's children is now being done to us. The great circle of justice keeps turning with the outcome not in our hands, but in the hands of the great mystery. Take it to heart, change, and act while you still can. This is Kevin Annick, Eagle Strong Voice, MurderByDecree.com, RepublicofCanada.ca. Stand by for more.